Welcome to the Whitefields Community Church Podcast. For more information about our church, including location and service times, visit us online at whitefieldschurch.com. If you are blessed by this message, please consider sharing it with others and leaving a rating or review on your favorite podcast app. Today's message comes from our series, 2 Corinthians, Strength in Weakness. Good morning, everyone. Please open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We're currently studying through the book of 2 Corinthians here on Sunday mornings as we travel through it verse by verse, chapter by chapter. That's how we like to study books of the Bible here at Whitefields. And we're currently in this series, which we're calling Strength in Weakness. And today we're picking up where we left off last week in chapter 8. So please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we open God's word. Lord, we thank you for your grace and your goodness towards us. Lord, thank you that you are a giving God. Thank you that you loved us so much that you gave your only son. And so, Lord, we pray that this morning you would shape us by your word. Thank you that you've given us your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us as we hear it, we would receive it and that we would be transformed by it. Lord, that our hearing of your word would not only result in good intentions, but also in genuine actions. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, it's been said that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus told a parable about two sons. Speaking to the religious leaders of Jerusalem at that time, here's what Jesus said. He said, what do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first son and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterwards, he changed his mind, and he went. And he went to the other son, and he said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? And they responded and said, the first. Now, the point of this story that Jesus is telling, this parable, is that what you actually do is more important than what you say you will do. So what you do is more important than what you say you will do. The second son in this story had good intentions. He intended to go. He said he would go. He said he would do what the father told him to do. But those intentions never translated into actions. And what Jesus is pointing out here is a really important principle for all of us. You see, sometimes we can trick ourselves into thinking that all that matters is having good intentions. Jesus wants us to understand that if our intentions don't translate into actions, then our intentions haven't actually accomplished anything. You know, I've talked to a lot of people over the years who've said things like, I've always intended to do this or to go there or to accomplish that. I've always intended to read the Bible and pray with my family. I've always intended to talk to that person or help with that thing. But the fact is that good intentions alone don't accomplish things. Good intentions don't change the world. Good intentions don't lead to transformation in your life unless those good intentions result in actions. Now, there's an interesting phenomenon that's been observed, and that is, first of all, that people who make daily to-do lists tend to be much more productive. So if you want to be more productive, they say, make daily to-do lists. But there's an interesting thing that comes along with that, and that's that they've noticed that the, the only downside to doing that is that our brains tend to have this tendency that once we've written something down, 
we get this feeling as if we've accomplished something when actually we haven't. We've just told ourselves what we intend to do. And so we can actually trick ourselves into thinking that we've accomplished something just by writing it down on a list. Now, in the same way, we can also fall into a trap where because we intend to do something or, or say that, yeah, we agree that that's a good thing to do, we can actually trick ourselves into thinking that our intentions were just as good as actions. You know, there's an interesting phenomenon that's come to the forefront in recent years because of the rise of social media, and that's that when something happens now in the world, whether it's a big social issue or whether it's perhaps a natural disaster, people will be quick to show their support for that issue or that concern on social media. And so what they'll do often, right, they might put a, an image or an icon on their profile picture on one of their social media platforms, and they might post an image that other people are posting. And of course, their intentions are good. We, we don't doubt that. Their concern is very real. But what can happen, again, with this idea of intentions is that something in our brain can tend to tell us that when we do something like that, we've expressed our intentions, we've actually done something to help. At least our brains think that, when in reality, we haven't actually accomplished anything. Right? So there's a, a lot of sharing of good intentions, but those good intentions don't always translate into actions and therefore don't accomplish anything. Listen to what the Bible has to say about this in 1 John chapter 3, verses 16 and 18. It says this, By this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But then he says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now, in our text today, we're going to see a situation in which the Corinthians had the best of intentions, and yet now they're being urged by the Apostle Paul to move beyond intentions to actions. And as we'll see, there's a lot of application in this for our lives today as well. The title of today's message is Loving Indeed and in truth. And here's what we're going to see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 10 through 24. Here's what we're going to see. That earnest giving in response to God's grace benefits us, serves others, and brings glory to Christ. So I'll say it one more time. That is our summary sentence. I'd love it if you'd write that down in your notes today. You take that thought with you as you go so that when somebody asks you later, what'd you guys talk about at church? You'll say this. We talked about this. Earnest giving in response to God's grace benefits us, serves others, and brings glory to Christ. So let's look at the first part of that. That'll also be our guide for studying this passage. Earnest giving in response to God's grace. So we pick up in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, in verse 10, where Paul the Apostle is telling the Christians in the city of Corinth, he tells them, In this matter I give you my judgment. This benefits you. What is this matter that Paul is talking about here, which he says benefits them? Well, what Paul's talking about in this section, he's talking about giving, and specifically, he's talking about financial giving. You see, at this time, Paul the Apostle was spearheading a project to collect money from all the Christian churches outside of Israel to help out the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Now, there are several reasons why Paul was doing this. The main reason was because we read in the book of Acts chapter 11 that at this time, there was a famine in the area of Jerusalem. Furthermore, the Jerusalem church, we read in the book of Acts, had an ongoing outreach 
to help provide meals for the hungry and poor widows in their community, which you can imagine in a time of famine would have been all the more needed and necessary uh, to feed these people who, even when it wasn't time of famine, had, had a hard time putting food on the table. And so Paul had this conviction that the other churches, the churches outside of Israel, not affected by the famine, they should take up a special collection and give a gift of financial aid to the church in Jerusalem to help those who've been affected by the famine and to support this ministry and this outreach of the Jerusalem church. And so Paul began writing letters to the different churches, asking them to take up a special offering to help the Christian brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, another reason why Paul wanted to do this project was because in the early church at that time, we know that there was some tension between the Jewish Christians and the non-Jewish Christians. And so Paul thought, what a great opportunity to use this time of crisis, this time of need, to give a gesture of goodwill, and he hoped that this would be unifying to the church as a whole. So here we see in chapter 8, Paul is telling the Corinthians how, as part of this project to raise this money for the church in Jerusalem, he recently traveled to Macedonia, which is northern Greece, and he was blown away there by the generosity of the Macedonian Christians because Macedonia was one of the poorest parts of the Roman Empire, and it was a place where Christianity was particularly persecuted heavily. And yet, despite their poverty, despite the persecution, despite the hardships that they faced in their lives, the Macedonian Christians had actually begged Paul for the opportunity to join in this act of grace, as he calls it, this, this act of giving financially to support the work of God. And it says there that they gave beyond their means. And now, having told the Corinthians about the incredible generosity of the Macedonians, now Paul turns to them and says, okay, guys, now it's your turn. Now it's your turn to be generous. And where we left off last week, Paul was explaining to the Christians there in Corinth that generosity is a key part of what it means to live the Christian life. Generosity is a key part of what it means to live the Christian life because being a Christian is about giving yourself wholly over to God and saying, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. Not just some parts of my life, but over every part of my life. And as you all know, a really big part of our lives has to do with how we spend our money. So if you make God Lord over your life, then that includes making him Lord over how you spend your money and what you spend your money on. And what that looks like, if we survey the Bible and all the passages in the Bible which talk about financial giving, what that looks like is this. God calls us to give regularly, proportionally, and worshipfully. So regularly, proportionally, and worshipfully. Now, in addition to that, sometimes there are special things, special opportunities that go beyond our regular proportional giving, like this collection for the church there in Jerusalem. But the point is this. As followers of Jesus, part of God's will for your life is that you would be generous, that you would be a generous person. And the reason for that is because God is a generous God. As we said last week, teaching us to give isn't so much God's way of raising money, 
as it is God's way of raising kids, right? So teaching us to give isn't so much God's way of raising money as it's God's way of raising kids, and we are those kids. He's our Heavenly Father, and as His children, He wants to raise us to be people who share His heart, His values, and He is a giving God. And that's why Paul told us in verse 9, where we left off last week, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, Yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. In other words, the thing that motivates us to be generous is the fact that God has been so incredibly generous to us. And so our acts of generosity and giving, they're not forced or coerced. Rather, they are done earnestly. Now, this word earnest is interesting because here in chapter 8, the word earnest is used seven times. A very popular word here in this chapter. You'll see it as we read through the text today. The word earnest is used seven times here in this chapter. And here's what that word means. It means resulting from or showing sincere and intense conviction. You see, this is what God desires. That as we experience His grace, as we understand His grace, that it would cause us to earnestly give in response to His grace. Now maybe you say, wait a second, tell me this. Why does God care what I do with my stuff? I mean, listen, if God wants to be generous with His stuff, that's on Him. But why does He need to come into my life and start telling me what I need to do with my stuff, right? Why does he need to tell me that I need to be generous? If he wants to be generous, go for it. Why does he need to tell me what I need to do with my stuff? And that's where Paul picks up here in the second part of 2 Corinthians chapter 8. And the first thing he tells us, here's, here's why. First of all, earnest giving in response to God's grace. First of all, it benefits us. It benefits you. Look at what Paul says in verse 10 in regard to financial giving. He says, in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you. What Paul's saying here is actually quite incredible and maybe even a bit surprising, isn't it? Remember, he's talking about giving and generosity, specifically about financial giving. And he says, listen, this is good for you, right? It benefits you. Now, you might ask the question, how in the world could that possibly benefit me? Right? I, if I have more money and then I give some away, then I have less money. That doesn't seem to be good for me. Like, how can you think that that's possibly good for me? Well, listen, there are actually several ways that giving and generosity is actually good for you and benefits your life. For example, the University of California in Berkeley is not a Christian organization. I'll just tell you that. Okay, UC Berkeley, not a Christian organization, and yet... They published a study in which they looked at the effects of giving, specifically financial giving, and what it causes in people's lives, like what it correlates with, what it, what it leads to. And here's what they found. They found that giving leads to improvements in both physical and mental health. So if you care about your physical and mental health, then you should pay attention, right? Giving benefits your physical and mental health. And here are some ways that they found. When people give, it has been shown to lower their blood pressure. It leads to lower rates of depression and lower stress levels. Furthermore, according to their study, those who give tend to live longer lives and they live with a greater sense of happiness and satisfaction. That all sounds pretty good. Now, throughout, throughout their study, in other words, what UC Berkeley discovered 
they succeeded in proving that what the Bible has taught for thousands of years is true, which we're thankful that they did that. In other words, benefit that giving benefits you. That's exactly what it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, one of the reasons why giving benefits you is because it gives your life meaning and purpose beyond yourself. Think about it like this. If you spend everything you have on yourself, then your life really has no meaning or purpose beyond yourself. And that's incredibly depressing. The only way that your life can make a difference is if you give, whether it's your time, your attention, your energy, or your resources, the only way for your life to make a difference in the world or in other people's lives is for you to give of what you have to something other than yourself. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, we read one of the most inspiring and yet one of the most challenging things that Jesus ever said. Luke, chapter 6, in verse 32, here's what Jesus said. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? Even sinners do the same. But then look what he says in verse 35. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. Now let me just dial back. If you lend and don't expect anything in return, we have a word for that. We call that giving, right? Like if you give and don't get, right? So if I lend and you give back, that's lending. If I lend and don't get anything back, that's giving. So we can just insert the word give there. So let's start again. But love your enemies and do good and give expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. So what God is calling us to do here, what Jesus is calling us to do, is to be like God in the ways that we love people and in our actions and in our generosity. He's calling us to give like God gives. And this is how God gives. He gives expecting nothing in return. That's so different than the way that we tend to give, right? We may not expect something in return financially, but we at least expect some acknowledgement, right? Some, someone to notice but he says, look, this is how God gives. He gives expecting nothing in return. And Jesus says, look, if you give like God gives, generously expecting nothing in return, then you will be rewarded. You will be rewarded. Now, how will you be rewarded? Obviously not by those people you gave to. They're not giving you anything in return, remember? You will be rewarded, in other words, by God, and you will be rewarded in life in ways that are not financial. In other words, if you earnestly give in response to God's grace, it will benefit you. That's what it said there, literally, in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 10. Jesus is inviting us and calling us to be like God in the ways that we relate to other people and in the ways that we relate to money. Now, why does God want us to be like him? Is it because he's miserable and he wants you to be miserable too, right? Like misery loves company and God's just hating it. All he's given and all these ungrateful people. And he says, you know what? I am tired of being miserable by myself. I want you to be miserable too. So you should act like me so we can be all miserable together. No, just the opposite. God is happy, content, and settled 
And he wants you to be those things as well. So as a loving father, God teaches us to give like he gives because he knows that it will lead to more joy in our lives, not less joy, right? Greater joy, and it will be good for us. See, when you give, it prevents materialism and selfishness from taking root in your heart. As you give, it teaches you that the purpose of your existence is not just to consume things, as you give, you get to be used by God in the world and in people's lives. Listen, if the money you make represents your time, the investment, right, of your time, your energy, and your talents, the money you make essentially represents the time, money, and talents that you have spent in your life. What that means is that your money essentially represents what you've done with your life. And therefore, how you spend your money is how you spend your life. And if that's true, then the question is this. What do you want to be the legacy and the mark that your life leaves behind? What do you want to be the legacy and the mark that your life leaves behind? By calling us to give in this way, God is inviting us to leave a legacy of furthering his work in the world. So earnest giving in response to God's grace, first of all, it benefits us. But I want you to see what else Paul says here in verse 10. So let's look at the latter half of verse 10 there. It says this, This benefits you who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. So apparently, about one year before the writing of this letter that we're reading right now, the Corinthian Christians had been contacted about this opportunity to give, and they had enthusiastically expressed their intentions to be part of the special collection for the church in Jerusalem, right? So they said, yes, we're in, count us in, we want to contribute, we want to be a part. But now here they are a year later, and maybe they started to do it in the beginning, but then they, they didn't continue, right? Maybe it plateaued. Maybe they forgot about it. Maybe they just stopped thinking about it. But now here they are a year later, and they still haven't actually done anything, right? So the intention is there. The desire has been expressed, but it hasn't yet been matched with actions. They had good intentions, but so far their good intentions have not turned into actions. So here's Paul encouraging the Corinthians to follow through on what they said they would do because, as we're going to see in the latter part of this chapter, Paul is sending a delegation of three men to Corinth to collect the offering that they promised a year ago. And Paul says, hey, I want you guys to be ready when they come, right? So they're coming, and I want you to be ready because they're coming to, to collect this offering. But there's a really important lesson in there for us that we shouldn't miss as we read this. You see, when Paul had talked to the Corinthians about giving, they had responded by saying, yes, we will totally do that. And yet here they are a year later, and they have not yet totally done it. William Barclay puts it like this. The devil will let you resolve as much as you like. The more, the better. Just as long as you never carry it out. The tragedy of life so often is not that we have high impulses, but that we fail to turn them into actions. You see, what can happen when, we, when you read the Bible when you listen to a sermon, when you, when you read something or hear a message and you nod and you say, yeah, that's good. I like that. I like what it says there. I agree with it in my heart. And maybe you even intend 
to act upon it. Maybe you write it down in your notes. But if we're not careful, what can happen is that we can trick ourselves into thinking that just by agreeing in our hearts and writing it in our notes, that we've actually done something about it when in fact we haven't. So the Apostle James, he talks about this in his epistle where he says, you know what that's like? It's like a person who looks at themselves in the mirror and they see that there's something that they need to do or something that they need to change, but then they walk away and they don't do anything about it. For example, we read in, if, if you read what it says here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, like about giving, like we talked about last week, and you say, yeah, that's great. Maybe you write down all the principles, right? All the numbered principles, but then you don't actually do anything about it. It's not going to benefit you or anybody else. The blessing is not in the agreeing. The blessing is found in the action. And so this applies, by the way, not just the topic of giving. This really applies kind of across the board to what God's Word says in so many different areas. And so I want to encourage you today as we consider this. Maybe there are areas where you have the best of intentions, but God is calling you to take those intentions and actually turn them into actions. Right? Open your heart and do the thing God is calling you to do. Maybe you need to write a letter of encouragement to someone. Maybe you need to pray for that person who's hurting. Maybe you need to share with that person who's struggling. Intentions don't change things. Actions do. And so when the Lord speaks to you about something, don't just nod in agreement, but actually do it. That brings us to the next part of our sentence. Earnest giving in response to God's grace, first of all, benefits us, but you know what else? It also serves others. Look what Paul says in verse 13. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Okay, so Paul's saying, look, as Christians around the world, we are the body of Christ. We're the body of Christ as, as different parts around the world. And as a body, those parts which are strong are called to, or we might even say have an obligation to, care for and strengthen those parts of the body that are weak. And right now, the Christians in Jerusalem are in need, and you guys have the ability to help them. But you know what? In the future, it could be that the situation is reversed and the tables are turned, and maybe you will be in a position at some point where you are in need, and God will call on them to meet your need from their, from their means. You see, he's saying this is how we function as a body. We're in this together, and we strengthen those parts of the body that are weak. And I'll just tell you, I, I think I've mentioned this before, but this was the thing which for me really led me to move to Hungary as a missionary. I had taken some mission trips, and I had seen how in other parts of the world God was working, and yet there were these needs, just incredible needs, and yet they were the kinds of needs which we here in the United States had abundance in regard to those things, in regard to uh, material resources and human resources. And, and in the U.S., we just had so much abundance in these things that they were needing and lacking. And I just thought to myself at that time, I don't have any money, 
But I do, I could just go myself, and if that would help, then I would do that. And so that's how I ended up in Hungary. It was this idea that the stronger parts of the body have an obligation to the weaker parts of the body to help them. And by the way, this is also the tact that we take when it comes to foreign missions here at our church, which is a big part of what we're about, right? We want to use what God has given us to support those parts of the body that need support and help because we're one body. Now, in verse 15, Paul makes an interesting reference to the book of Exodus, and it's Exodus chapter 16, if you want to look it up. But here's the deal. In Exodus chapter 16, we read about how God provided manna in the wilderness for the people of Israel. You remember, the manna would appear every morning with the dew, and the people would gather it, and they would eat it, and the manna sustained them throughout their time in the wilderness. But the thing about manna was, you couldn't hoard it. Let's say you were like, this is great. I'm just going to get all the manna I can, and that way I can just keep it. And then later on, like if I want a snack, you know, I, maybe I can have a snack later. You just, I'll just have all the manna. You couldn't hoard it because what would happen is after about a day, the manna would rot, and it would become putrefied. It would start to stink, and it would be full of worms, which is gross. So the thing with the manna was that you could only take as much as you needed, right? You couldn't get greedy with it, and if you did, it would just start to stink. Uh, if you hoarded it, it would become rotten and gross. And what Paul's saying is really interesting. He's saying that's how it is with money as well, by the way. It's like manna. God gives it to us to provide for us, for our needs. He gives it to us to use. But if you get greedy with it, it turns rotten and it gets nasty. You know what? In a world in which so many people love money and use people, God is calling us instead to love people and use money. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul uses three words to describe the act of giving. I find this fascinating. Here in this one chapter, he uses three words to describe the act of financial giving. He uses these words. Check them out. They all give a slightly different angle and aspect on what it means to give and why we give. So first of all, there's the word in Greek, charis, which, by the way, is the word for grace. It means a gift, an act of grace, as Paul calls it here in this chapter. So that's part of giving. Sometimes giving is a gift. But another word he uses for giving in this chapter, specifically in verse 4, he uses the word koinonia, which is the Greek word for fellowship. But it's richer than just like hanging out, right? Like koinonia means mutual sharing, giving of what you have and receiving of what someone else has. So it's that idea, koinonia, an act of fellowship and mutual sharing. And then the third word he uses for giving here in this chapter is the word diakonia, which you might recognize. We get the word deacon from that. Deacon simply means servant. So diakonia was an act of practical service for the benefit of somebody else. And what Paul's saying, each of these three words describes a different aspect of what it means to give and why we give. So on the one hand, giving is an act of fellowship as we give as a church, right? There's an act of mutual sharing that takes place. There's also an aspect of this where it's simply a gift, an act of grace. And there's another part of giving, which is act of practical service in a way that can be used by God to make a difference in the world and in the life of someone else. And this brings us to our final point here, which is this. Earnest giving in response to God's grace 
Not only does it benefit us, not only does it serve others, but it also brings glory to Christ. And that's what we're going to see in the final verses here. So in these final verses from 16 to 24, Paul's going to tell the Corinthian Christians about this three-man delegation who is coming their way to collect the financial contribution they're making to this project. Look at what he says in verse 16. But thanks be to God who put into the heart of Titus the same earnest care that I have for you. For he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he is going to you of his own accord. With him, we are sending the brother who is famous among all the churches for his preaching of the gospel. By the way, we have no idea who that guy is, but I kind of feel like I wish I did, right? Like, who is this guy so famous? Well, Paul doesn't tell us his name. He just tells us his character. So there's two guys, Titus and this other guy. And he says, not only that, but he, this unnamed person, has been appointed by the churches. By the way, that word appointed refers to a raising of hands. They took a vote. They appointed this guy by the churches to travel with us as we carry out this act of grace that's being ministered by us. So Paul's saying, not only is he going to you, but he's going to be joining me and going to Jerusalem to deliver this gift. And he says, for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our good will. We take this course so that no one should blame us about this generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim for uh, yeah, for we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. And verse 22, here's the third guy. And with them we are sending our brother, whom we have often tested and found earnest in many matters, but who is now more earnest than ever because of his great confidence in you. So three men are going to Corinth. They're on their way to receive this contribution to this special project. Titus and two other men whose names were not given, but we are told about their character. They're men of outstanding character. They've been tested. They've been approved. They've been handpicked by the people in the other churches to carry out this work because they all understood that impropriety in these financial matters would give grounds to those who wanted to discredit their ministry. So financial impropriety would give grounds to those who wanted to discredit their ministry. There are plenty of people out there at that time, just as there are today, who would have been happy to say, oh, you see, those people, they don't have pure motives. They're just in it for the money. I'll bet they're skimming off the top, right? Taking some of that money for themselves. But Paul says, no, no, no. In order that we might be above reproach, so that God gets all the glory, we're going to take every precaution we can to make sure that every dime you give gets to where it was intended to go. And that requires integrity, and that requires accountability. So these principles, these are principles that every church needs to follow. And by the way, they're principles that we seek to follow here at Whitefields as well when it comes to handling the money that people give. Because right on the one hand, there's the impulse, right, that God's telling us to give. But then on the other hand, there has to be accountability. And there has to be uh, integrity when it comes to receiving it and handling it. And so Paul says here there needs to be transparency. There needs to be accountability and every effort towards the utmost integrity so that God gets all the glory. Verse 23, as for Titus, he's my partner and fellow worker for your benefit. And as for our brothers, they are messengers of the church, the glory of Christ. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So Paul says, these are top-notch guys, and they're headed your way, so make me proud. I know you will. 
In 1 Timothy chapter 6, God's word gives us this exhortation. It says this, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good and be rich in good works and to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now here's what I found. I found that in talking to people, I don't meet a lot of people who would say, that they are rich. So in other words, when we read a passage like this, where it says, Paul says to Timothy, here's what you should say to the rich people. We read that, and our tendency for most of us tends to be, man, I sure hope the rich people find a Bible, open that thing up, and read this, because this is speaking to them. They really need to hear this, and I hope they really take it to heart. That, that's our tendency. It, we figure it's certainly not talking to me. I mean, I, I'm definitely not that guy. But here's the deal. Listen, in our society, even those who have the least amongst us still tend to have more than most people in the rest of the world, and certainly more than most people have throughout history. In other words, globally and historically, we are the richest people who have ever lived, okay? Like financially. And what that means is that this passage is, is not just speaking to somebody else out there who we hope maybe reads it. This passage is speaking to us. This is God's message to you and to me today. And here's what it says to us. Do not set your hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Set your hope instead on God. Be rich in good works. Be generous and ready to share and store up or a good foundation for the future so that you may take hold of the life which is truly life. See, when it talks about preparing for your future and taking hold of that which is truly life, that's referring to eternity. Jesus told us it is possible to gain the whole world and yet lose your own soul. But the way to take hold of the life that is truly life is by placing your hope not in the things of this world that perish, but by placing your hope in Jesus who loves you and who gave himself for you so that you could be saved. In the person of Jesus Christ, God came to us in order to live the life that you should have lived, a life of perfect obedience to the Father, and to die the death that you should have died in judgment for your sins. He came and he did those things for you in your place, so that as you put your hope and your trust in him and what he did for you, that you would become rich in a way that no amount of money here on earth could ever buy or even compare. And I pray that you would do that today and that you would be rich towards God and that you will heed what God's word says about earnest giving, not just with good intentions, but that you'll take heed to it with genuine actions. Friends, earnest giving in response to God's grace it benefits us, it serves others, and it brings glory to Christ. Would you please bow your heads with me and let's pray as we also take communion. You have been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Make sure to tap the subscribe button if you would like to have new messages delivered to your device every week when they are released. 
If you have been blessed by this message and would like to support our ministry, you can do so by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or by giving a donation to our church on our website at whitefieldschurch.com.